As Joel shared, I'm going to be preaching out of several verses, several different sections in the letter to Jude, from Jude, but I want to highlight what this message is. It's not primarily designed to name false teachers. There's a place for that. The Bible's not afraid to do that on false teachers of its day, nor should we as preachers be afraid to do that on false teachers in our day. This message, however, is designed to help you identify false teachers and false teaching. Then hopefully you can not just evaluate your own pastors, which of course you're called to do to test all things, but to take a look at your bookshelves, your podcasts, the voices that have a seat at the table of your mind and your heart, and to try to identify, are these teachers sound? And hopefully you'll find that they are for sure. So hopefully you have found the book of Jude. If you haven't, if you're still looking, it's way at the end of your Bible. I want to just hit a couple of areas that we risk when we address this issue of false teaching, just two. One is we risk being received as divisive or uncharitable. Addressing this topic might offend some who enjoy certain teachers. Maybe at the end of this message, you'll be, wait a second, Rob, I think, is highlighting this guy or this person. I really like this person. It might cause some of somebody who holds to those doctrines to feel like they're being adjusted. Some might wonder, why aren't the pastors more charitable, more easygoing, leaving well enough alone, minding their own business? Christ provides a very rich example for us here in the Scriptures. The most influential false teachers in Israel at the time of Jesus were the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were teaching things that were contrary to God's word and that were leading God's people astray. And so in turn, Jesus repeatedly points out their errors, flipping tables at times. In Matthew 23, he goes on to call these very false teachers hypocrites, blind guides, a brood of vipers. And this continues throughout the book of Acts and continues in the epistles. He does so in the book of Colossians and as you're finding out in the letters from Peter. The question is why? Why do the, the teachers in the scriptures address this issue? Jude's going to help us answer that today. Take a look at verse 3. Right there at the beginning of his letter, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude wanted to write about the doctrines that we share, deepening our holiness, expounding our love for God, elevating our view of God. That's what he wanted to write about. And I trust that's what comes from this pulpit week in and week out regularly. The gospel and the gospel applied. Here, though, he couldn't write about those things. There was a pressing importance because the people he's writing to we're at risk of not contending for the faith that was delivered to them. 
There's a cost when we do this. And it takes a maturity on the part of the listener to hear and process this. We're, I'm aware as I bring this message that we risk being divisive. But there's a second thing that we risk, and that's upsetting some of you, not just because we may be addressing some teachers you may or may not be reading or listening to. But I know it's true in our church. I expect it's true here. Some of you may come from backgrounds that have been affected by false teachers. Maybe you've been taught things that were held out to you as true, that have come at a great cost to you. And you've come to learn, wait a minute, that isn't what the Bible said, that isn't what the Bible meant. Maybe you've been under teachers whose doctrine is just fine, but they've used their authority and their power to lord it over you, to reach into your lives and control beyond the bounds of Scripture. And so as we address this issue, it strikes perhaps a yet open nerve in your own soul. Listen, if that's you, first of all, I want to just commend you for being in a church at all this morning. If you come from a place, a church that has harmed you, coming to another church to receive comfort takes great courage. Christ is pleased. God, I trust, is reaching down now and seeking to help you. For all of us, we must understand the voices in our times, and we've got to understand the voices that want to tell us how to interpret those times. Those voices are contending for your heart. They are contending against the Lord and against His Word for your heart. And so we're going to need God's help as we go through this message. Let's just stop for a moment and ask Him. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, we trust you're going to use Jude and what you've inspired him to write to serve us in this time, in this day. And at the same time, Lord, we trust your Holy Spirit will come and apply this message personally, specifically, so that we each leave here not just more conformed to the image of Christ, as glorious as that is, but more equipped to walk into our day today, our day tomorrow, this week that you've provided, to do it wisely, carefully, and lovingly. God, that's a lot to ask out of one message, but you're a God who gives abundantly to his people. So would you do that today in Jesus' precious name? Amen. I have two simple points, two different kinds of dangerous teachers. Here's the first, dangerous on purpose. Okay, this is the man or the woman who knows that he or she is a false teacher. This is the category Jude primarily has in mind as he's writing this letter. Look at verse 4. We just read verse 3. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So this is only four verses into his letter. Jude is coming out throwing punches. 
It's a short letter. He doesn't have a lot of time to waste. It's only one chapter. The stakes for him are high. And so he can't waste his time. He wants to get right to it. Skim down to verses 12 and 13, and he's going to describe these teachers that he's warning his people about. Verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love fests. Now, a reef in the ocean is very dangerous because it can tear apart the hull of a ship, but the real danger in reefs is that they're underwater and you can't see them. If you see a giant reef sticking up out of the ocean, you'll just steer the ship away from it. The danger is they're hidden. It looks safe. He's calling these teachers hidden reefs at their love feast. Just means in their fellowship. When they're fellowshipping together, they're hidden among you. They appear to be like you. As they feast with you without fear. There's an arrogance, a brazenness to them. Shepherds feeding themselves, which is a contradiction in terms. Shepherds feeding themselves. They're among the sheep, but they're using the sheep for their own advantage. Waterless clouds, promising rain, but not able to produce any. Swept along by the winds, vacuous like chaff. Fruitless trees in late autumn when all of the branches of the trees ought to be weighed down with fruit. There's none to find on these teachers. Twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I do not want to be one of these people. That's not good. That's a bad bio. These teachers that Jude is writing about, these dangerous on purpose teachers, they're driven by power, by control. They seek to use the church as an instrument for their own advancement, their own sense of importance, to grow their own wealth or their own pleasure. What might it look like in our day. What might that look like? Well, in verse 4, as we read, Jude accuses them of perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. Sometimes, sadly, tragically, these leaders use their influence and their position to coerce others for pleasure. This is where you see leaders committing sexual sins against the members of their church. They convince those around them that they're above the law. They'll say things like, I'm the pastor, you can trust me. I'm the prophet, you can trust me. God has already shown me that this is okay. These teachers are beyond accountability. They're always the one in charge of the room. Not the one leading. Rooms need leaders. They're the one in charge. Every decision has to meet their satisfaction. Those who are close to these types of leaders are there for the leader's bidding, for his advancement, not to keep him accountable, not to walk in open fellowship. 
If you oppose or think differently than one of these teachers, not only can you not be in their inner circle, you'll be cast to the margin if not driven out altogether. There's conniving and manipulation. There's always jockeying the pieces to make sure they lose no power. There's lots of call to sacrifice, but very little participation in sacrifice. In all these ways, they deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They will not live under his authority or under his direction. Where the scripture would correct or adjust, they find their own interpretation to squeeze out from underneath it so that they can't be held under its authority. They abuse, they attack, they divide, rob, steal, and destroy. Can you see why they're so dangerous to the church? Now, no one in the history of man was more qualified to be in control of everything than the Lord Jesus. Yet, what do we see, not only in His earthly ministry, but now in His intercession and lordship over all things, we see He took the form of a servant. We see that He lowered Himself and used His authority to raise others up. Instead of showing others just how awesome and deserving of authority he was. He laid his life down so that others might know God better. People benefited from Jesus' authority. Jesus did not have a mansion or a private jet or a stylist, or a golden toilet. If I kept making a list, it would just get more and more absurd, but equally true. Jesus had no place to lay his head, but he's building mansions for us. That's how God has called his shepherds to lead. That's how we're to use our authority and while I hope you find the pastors of this church to be trustworthy, I trust you do, I also hope you're not saying, okay, check, we don't have to watch out for this. And there's two reasons for that. Your pastors need you to hold a high standard for what they teach from this pulpit. Just because you like Joel or Jason doesn't mean you should just take anything they say. Test it by the Word of God. They'd invite that. But they are not the only preachers and teachers in your life. I trust you have bookshelves with books on them. Maybe you listen to podcasts. Maybe you check out different preachers on YouTube. Please don't believe something just because it's in print and is sold by a professing author. Read Christian books, listen to Christian podcasts, watch other preaching to be sure, but test it by the Word of God. Don't just follow it because it's persuasive or because it's sold great amounts of copies. Test all of your teachers, those you sit under live, those you listen to, and those you read in pages by the Word of God. Let me ask you a question. Why would the dangerous on purpose teacher 
find his or her livelihood in the church. Why not take their skills elsewhere? It's precisely because of the kind of people the gospel cultivates. This is among the things that makes these teachers especially heinous. They prey on genuine fruit of the gospel. The gospel calls us to trust our leaders, to be humble, to follow our leaders. We're called to be suspicious of our own intentions and to trust the input we get from others. As a result, the church lays vulnerable to being sitting ducks for these teachers. But we don't have to be sitting ducks. Matthew 10 calls us to be wise as serpents and what? Innocent as doves. Not wise as serpents or innocent as doves. Choose one. We're called as followers of Jesus to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The answer to dangerous on purpose teachers is not distrusting leadership. It's not arrogance. It's not I will believe my own convictions no matter how informed or uninformed they are. Each of those in and of themselves are disobedience denying your own master and Lord. We're called to humility. But other parts of the Bible will call us to test what we're taught. We're called to follow leadership. But we're called to judge a leader and a teacher by his fruit. The Bible calls us to be kind and trusting, but it also calls us to fight and to stand strong and to contend for the faith that's been given to you. When you are a follower of Jesus like that, humble and wise, following but testing, wolves will flee from this congregation because there's easier prey down the road for them. One of the greatest ways you can contend for your faith is to be that kind of a follower. Humble, don't forget that part, but contending. Don't leave the humility for the other people in the church and just think you're gifted to be a contender. No, we're all called to all of these things. So that's the first category, dangerous on purpose. The second category, dangerous by error. This group of false teachers is typically characterized by sincere motives. They genuinely believe they have your best interests in view. The problem is they're just genuinely wrong. It's more than just error. We're not talking a mistake that you may get in some teaching. It's error on essential Christian doctrine that substantially alters the nature of God or His Word. This kind of error threatens the gospel. Listen, someone can be genuinely wrong, genuinely believe that Jesus is a created being and not the eternal Son of God. This is part of what's called the Arian heresy. It's been around for 17, some hot, some odd hundred years. That doctrine 
of Jesus as a created being is counter to the nature of God and the nature of his word. And therefore, it must be refuted, and those teachers must be labeled dangerous. Arius may have been a great guy, but he was dangerous to his followers by error. Someone else may believe that God means to deliver his people from all suffering and from all poverty. This is the heresy known as the prosperity gospel. Well-intended people can believe this, but they can't believe this and be right. This is danger by error, regardless of their intentions. We need this category in our arsenal. Just because somebody's teaching something wrong doesn't mean you've got to, you know, loose the whole army on them. They may be genuinely mistaken. Perhaps this teacher you come across may be like the Apollos, who was teaching something contrary to the word. And in Acts 18, he's brought correction. He humbles himself under that, comes to a deeper and more proper understanding of the word of God and goes on to be a great preacher for the kingdom. That's what we would hope would happen when people are in error. They receive correction humbly and they alter their teaching. Kevin DeYoung did a series, much like you're going through here, and he said this. He said, we often think false teachers are charlatans, and they're after money, and they're so obviously bad people. But if you know church history, you know more often than not, that's not the case. It's often those who are most sincere, those who are motivated with a great deal of passion, who end up just getting their theology off by a couple of degrees, and then they follow that trajectory down the wrong path, and they end up being the most destructive teachers in the church. Do you see that all their theology needs to do is to be off by two or three degrees? I'll do it this way so you can see. Two or three degrees, 10, 20 years of that teaching will take you so far afield from truth. That's why these errors matter. We can't say just because they mean well. Don't they mean well? Can't we just overlook that? Well, their good intentions can inform how you adjust this, can inform what you think of them as people, but their good intentions are not the measure by which you evaluate their teaching. It's the authoritative word of God. Does this mean, Rob, that anyone who disagrees with us is a false teacher? No. There are genuine Christians, born-again, Christ-loving, Bible-believing men and women that disagree with some of what we teach. Perhaps they prefer a different translation of the Bible, or they believe gifts are not for today. Perhaps they differ from us on the issue of divorce and remarriage, or on music in the church, or on end times, or on baptism. These are not unimportant, but none of these necessarily alters the nature of God, nor His Word. These are what 
Christians would call disputable matters. And so we may worship in separate places, but we don't need to divide with this person over faith. There's a centuries-old saying. It's been very popular in the Reformation. It says this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. On the essentials, we must contend for the faith that has been handed down. This is Jude's call. It's God's call to us today. We must not allow compassion or fear or good intentions on the part of the false teacher to prevent us from standing strong for our faith. They are essential doctrines that must be guarded. On the non-essentials, however, we grant liberty and do not divide or name-call or stand in judgment. We may belong to different denominations, but we're going to the same heaven. And so we are brothers and sisters with those. If there's disagreement, if you want to debate the gifts with somebody, that's a fine thing to do so long as charity doesn't get lost. Even on the essentials, as we are contending for the faith, we are not then excused to set aside Christ-like Christ character in our debate and our defense. We can't insult, name-call, gossip about these false teachers just because we're saying we're contending for the faith. In all things, charity, in all things, we walk it out as those who are following Christ. And so what could this look like in your life today? How can you leave here applying this? Well, I want to hit two areas of concern I have for the church not this church in particular, but the state of the church. The modern Reformed church has a wonderful love for the Word of God and for sound doctrine. They're to be commended for this. But there are two concerns that I have, and here's the first. I'm concerned when hope in politics exceeds hope in God. We cannot allow our passions for particular issues to dampen or confuse our discernment on the rest of a politician's platform, on the rest of his or her character or conduct. This applies to the office of president, past, present, and future. It applies to the offices of Congress, past, present, and future. And the platforms of political parties, past, present, and future. We find false teachers there as well, preachers trying to teach us, demand from us how we are to discern our world. And often, let me say most often, it is not informed by this. When it comes to politics, and social issues. Friends, just open your Bible and do what it says. If that takes you in that day apart from your political party, please belong to Jesus before you belong to a political party. 
Just follow the Bible. Follow it. Talk about these things like you're a Christian, not a political assassin. Support the social issues that matter to you within the bounds of Scripture. But please, I'm calling you, be far more passionate about faith than you are about those issues. In all of these things, it, within social reform and politics, allow the Scriptures to inform your demeanor. Hope in God will protect you from godlessness in politics. Hoping in God will protect you from godlessness in politics. And where you or a friend identify that there's godlessness in your politics, it's probably pressing right on an area you're not sufficiently hoping in God. That's my first concern. My second concern is for the ground that's been gained by the more subtle prosperity gospel preachers. When some of these preachers are named, a common response is, but that man has helped so many people. But that woman has helped so many people. We're not to test their teaching by the worldly effect on their listeners. We're not to test their teaching on their intentions. We're to test it by the Word of God. Listen, if I have an itchy ear and somebody comes and scratches it with their teaching, that's going to relieve the annoyance of the itch. I'm going to feel helped and maybe walked right away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. If people are struggling with a poor self-image and a teacher improves their self-image, we'd be able to say, but he's helped so many people only with how they view themselves, not with how they view themselves before the truth of God. It's the wrong test, friends. Here's a good test. Are they being helped with truth? Do people know Christ better as a result of their teaching, or do they just feel better? Are they leaning more on the promises of God with a right understanding of the Scriptures, or are they helped by slogans, books, sayings, or bumper stickers? When we love God and His truth above all else, we will examine these men and women by the Word, not by their worldly impact. And so, I'm going to give you seven points of application. They all will be very brief. They all flow directly out of Jude 20 to 23. Even as I'm going through these, you can have your eyes on Jude 20 to 23. Number one, know your Bible. How can you leave this message and contend for the faith that's been entrusted to you? Well, here's the first thing. Know your Bible. Verse 20 says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. The best way to identify a counterfeit is not to know every counterfeit that's out there, but it's to know the real thing as, as well as you possibly can. That way when a counterfeit, maybe even a new counterfeit comes along, you can identify it because you know the real thing so well. 
We can't judge truth based on our instincts. It's got to be from the Word of God. False teachers tend to draw toward and gain footing with those who have an underdeveloped understanding of doctrine. So know your Bible. It's a wonderful repellent to false teaching. Number two, pray. Verse 20 goes on to say this phrase, praying in the Holy Spirit. If you are sitting here born again, you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And He loves and directs us in all truth. Learn the difference between His voice and that which resonates most with your emotions. Sometimes, maybe often, they overlap. But a warm sense of agreement with something that's being taught is not the same as the Spirit confirming it. Listen, the Spirit will never confirm that which the Bible denies. The Spirit of God is not going to tell you something contrary to the Word of God. So if you got this warm feeling listening to somebody, and a brother in this church or a sister in this church can share with you, no, 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 let's open our Bibles. Let's just take a look at that. We can't say, oh, but it felt so real. This is the inspired Word of God. Number three, walk closely with Christ. Verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. If you pursue, one, knowing your Bible, and two, praying, you're going to find yourself doing three, walking closely with Christ. But don't overlook the part others play in your close walk with Christ. Keeping yourself in community and surrounding yourself with discerning men and women is a wonderful protection against false doctrine. False teachers will pick off those who are outside the fold. They will pick off the lone Christian, the fringe person at Redeemer Fellowship. So press toward community. Be known by others. Process any changes in your convictions with others. And you'll find yourselves contending well for the faith. Number four, trust the promises of Christ. Verse 21 says this, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Christ has made many, many promises, and they are all more certain than anything this world offers you. His return is likely the one that's in view here, but there are many, many more. How can you contend for the faith and protect yourself against false teaching? Entrust yourselves to the promises of God. When you do that, you close the loophole that false teachers sneak through. They want to access your worldview right in the areas where you're disappointed in God. Those very moments, those areas are where we need to double our efforts in living in the goodness of God's promises, in blessing yet to be sent our way, still stored up for us. Number five, live mercifully toward others. And this is in verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. If you are lacking mercy 
on those who are weaker in the faith, it invariably makes you weaker in your faith. Arrogance and pride have a detrimental effect on the security of your faith. So, pursue humility. Live mercifully toward others. Number six, live on mission. Look at verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. False teachers, either the ones on purpose or the ones by error, can tend to be very imbalanced in, in parts of the Christian life. One element of it shoots to the top and becomes what's most important. And the rest of the scriptures all get subjugated to that one doctrine. And one of the things that they love to take us off of is evangelism, is helping those who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. For some of them, faith is all about the end times and not about sanctification here on earth. For other false teachers, it's about receiving the blessings and the wealth from God, but not about equipping God's people to endure through the many trials and tribulations that are promised to us. If you remain focused, staying on mission, seeking to save the lost, growing the immature up in the fullness of mature faith, you'll be contending for what's been handed to you. Which takes us to number seven, live an upright life. And it's how verse 23 ends. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. If you are actively tolerating known sin in your life, your spiritual senses become dull. It makes us vulnerable to lies. This is why Paul tells Pastor Timothy to guard carefully his life and his doctrine. So if there's an area, even as I'm speaking here, you've been keeping in darkness, hidden, for your own sake, for the sake of your walk, and for the sake of the faith that has been handed down to you, bring it into the light. Receive forgiveness. Receive the shoring up that the body of Christ and the word of God can bring and live uprightly. All of this contending for the faith, the dangerous teachers, all of the doctrines that are out there competing for our heart, it can feel very daunting. These calls to courage, to faith, to grace, to mercy. You could come to the end of this message and you could feel scared, intimidated by it, weighed down. Jude knows that. He's a pastor. He knows that. And so he won't end his letter with you feeling down and scared and intimidated. And it would be wrong for me to end this sermon with you feeling down and discouraged. So we're going to end this message the way Jude ends his letter with a reminder we've got to rehearse every day that our hope is not in our own efforts in these things. Though we are called to apply effort daily, our hope is in Christ 
alone. Take a look at verses 24 and 25. After giving all these warnings, the dangerous teachers swirling around the audience, Jude says this, Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. May this be the testimony you leave here with, that you go into a dangerous world filled with dangerous teachers, but you go with an all-powerful Savior who has given you his spirit and has promised to lead you safely home. Go with courage, not that you've memorized this amount of verses or that you study this number of books, but you belong to this kind of God.